0: We interrupt our normal series on the Called Out Cafe to bring you a special edition. Warning. This episode of the Called Out Cafe podcast may cause you discomfort, irritation, and sleeplessness. Can I call you right back? Please consult your physician if the Called Out Cafe is right for you. Hi. You're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast. This is episode number three of a special edition mini series titled. The World Upside Down Debunked. Essentially, I'm debunking the flat earth theory by using the World Upside Down Biblical Earth documentary video, which is available on YouTube, as an example of what flat earthers believe. I've been going through the video and addressing each and every point made, one at a time. If you haven't listened to the previous two episodes in this series, I would suggest you push stop, and you go back and you listen to those first. There's a bunch of stuff... You'll probably want to know to understand where I'm coming from. Well, why am I doing this? It's because flat earth theory is growing in popularity. It's now estimated that over 2% of the United States population believe in a flat earth. You know, shame on us. Shame on our educational system. Shame on our pastors for allowing that to happen. I think I might have previously said it was 1% of the U.S. population believed in the flat earth theory that's now wrong, according to the latest polls. I'm convinced that a large number of those people would call themselves Christians. I believe that they've allowed themselves just simply to be deceived. Well, let me start off this episode by saying that all the conspiracy theories related to the flat earth have been soundly debunked many times over. Like I said in the last episode, the amount of people it would take to pull off a fake moon landing would be staggering. The odds of keeping it a secret are incalculable. All of the related fakes that the flat earthers allege that go along with a fake moon landing would take multiple trillions of dollars to keep them going. And ask yourself, who's paying the bill for that? Where's the money trail? Who's behind this thing that involves millions of people? And here's the most important question. What do they have to gain on their investment? The answer is nothing. Such a conspiracy would have to be passed down from generation to generation. By now, millions of people will have died that all took the enormous secret that the earth is really flat to the grave with them. They would have had to recruit and train millions more to take their place, swearing them into this secret society, training them in fake science, just to keep the facade going, telling them never to let on what the truth really is. I got to wonder what kind of power would these people have over all of these college kids getting ready to go to college. And why is it that we think that somebody wouldn't break out of that and start podcasting about it and making millions of dollars anyway? So they can't let on to what the truth is, right? And why would that be again? I heard one answer to the why question recently. It's that society couldn't handle it if they found out that the earth was really flat. Really? Why? A lot of people used to believe that the earth was flat until the thing called science came along and proved it wrong. I'm sure that people wouldn't have any issues if it could actually be proven that the earth is flat. So let's move on now with the content of the video. Let's talk about the images of the Earth. So what about the hundreds of thousands of images of the Earth that have been taken from outer space? The answer the narrator gives is, quote, as for the images of the Earth that NASA has produced, they all have been created through Photoshop, unquote. While we're talking about images here, as a side note, did you know there's not a single flat Earth map in existence which pretends to have an accurate, an accurate distance index on it? They can't figure out how to make the shortest distance between the southern tip of South America and Australia not be via the North Pole. Anyway, to demonstrate how NASA and others have faked every picture taken from space, an audio recording of NASA employee Robert Simmon... Is played. He's the guy who's responsible for editing the picture of the Earth known as the Blue Marble 2.0. The narrator sells this interview as some sort of an admission that all pictures of the Earth from space have been fabricated. The audio recording of Mr. Simon, maybe it's Simon, S-I-M-M-O-N, is actually instructive of how many different digital satellite images taken from space have been knit together to form the one image. This is no recording of a whistleblower confession. This is a how-they-did-it interview. No one is trying to hide anything. NASA is very open about how these images are edited together. Knitting images together is out of necessity, since the satellites are too close to the Earth to take a picture of the entire globe at one time. Nevertheless, all of the images that you see or that are used, anyway, are real digital images of slices of the Earth that were pieced together. Photoshop wasn't even invented when humans started taking photos of the Earth from space. The first photographic image taken of the Earth from space was from the vantage point of a captured Nazi V-2 rocket that was launched from White Sands Missile Range on October 24, 1946. That was 12 years before even NASA was formed. The photo was shot on a 35 millimeter camera 30 years before Photoshop or anything like it was invented. The original photo, known as the Blue Marble, was taken on a 70 millimeter Hasselblad camera with an 80 millimeter lens by the crew of Apollo 17. It's just one real camera taking one image of the Earth, not knit together. And that was on December 7th. 1971, and it was from 28,000 miles out in space. No images in that photo were knit together. Let me be clear about that. Portraying NASA as a primary agency that set on misleading the public into believing the earth is round is a really hard sell. People have been saying the earth is round for thousands of years when NASA didn't even exist. They've been proving it through methods other than going to space for a very long time also. The effort to study astronomy is a worldwide effort and not dependent on NASA. Russia, remember Russia, the USSR when I was growing up? They were not our friend during the Cold War. They're a current enemy. I think we could define them as an enemy of the United States with the situation that's been going on in Ukraine. And they have their own vigorous space program. Yet, they rely on the same science about the universe as the U.S. does. Seventy-seven different countries have a space program, sixteen of which have the capability of launching rockets into space. Several of those countries are not friendly towards each other and don't agree on much. But they all agree that space exists... The earth is round, the moon is real, and the sun is approximately 92.335 million miles away. What I'm saying is that if the universe as the world and science knows it is a hoax, it's a hoax that's dependent on a million people worldwide to keep it going and keep it secret. That million people only includes those working in the space-related industries. It doesn't even include the fields of astronomy, astrophysics, cosmology, data science, or planetary sciences, among others. Not to mention that the U.S. military now has a branch of service called the Space Force, which employs another 16,000 military and civilian personnel. Wouldn't you think the big lie of a spherical planet and no space would leak out sometime. (laughs) Well, let's talk about the sun. The narrator asks these following misleading questions. This is all a quote. Have you ever noticed when you look out of an airplane window, you seem to be on the same field as the sun? Have you ever noticed that sometimes you can see clouds behind the sun? Have you ever noticed that the sun's rays disperse from a single point in the sky? End the quote. He then, of course, assumes that the viewer will answer all these questions with a yes, as he provides the reasons that you must be in agreement with him. He says, quote, This is because the sun is not located 92 million miles away. It's actually much, much closer. Unquote. He cites psalms nineteen four to one, highlighting quote the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork unquote. and quote in them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. Unquote. It's a shame that the narrator is misusing this scripture by reducing the intended meaning down to a pseudoscience lesson on astronomy, especially where his conclusions are completely erroneous. Verse 6, in this very scripture he's citing, speaks of the sun's going forth from one end of the heavens to the other. Well, this has to do with the sun rising on one side of of the visible arch of the sky in the east and setting on the other side in the west. The sun comes up from below the horizon, passes through our visible sky, what the narrator calls the firmament, and then sets below the horizon. As previously stated, if the earth were flat, it wouldn't set below the horizon. The flat sun would appear as a tiny oval in the eastern sky. As it approached, it would grow larger, and it would turn into a circle as it went above us. And then, as it passed by to the west, it would get smaller, and become a tiny oval again as it disappeared from view. Think about that. They say that you can see the entire sky over the flat earth, so there's never anywhere for the sun to set behind. They have no good explanation for that. Sometimes some of them will try to talk about refracted light, but then it's a rule about refracted light that only seems to apply to the sun and nothing else. But to get back to the narrator's questions, first, this question, have you ever noticed when you look out of an airplane window, you seem to be on the same field as the sun? Well, yes, but only shortly after the sun has come up or soon before it sets below the horizon. Otherwise, the sun spends most of its time above the plane or down below the horizon and it's dark outside. His question implies it's always the case that the sun is on the same altitude as the airplane. That is just simply an attempt at intentional deception. So, next he asks if the viewer has ever noticed the clouds behind the sun. Well, I gotta say this. Please don't ever look directly at the sun. (laughs) Next, if you do and you think you're seeing clouds behind the sun, it's an illusion, like seeing a mirage in the desert. That legitimately has to do with light refraction. But by asking this question, is the narrator now saying that the sun is in the first heaven, You know, in the sky and not the firmament? The place where the clouds and the birds are found, so that the sun sometimes passes in front of the clouds? So the sun is really only a few miles up in the sky at most? I think we're getting our first and second heavens mixed up, Mr. Narrator. Well, finally, the narrator asks, Have you ever noticed that the sun's rays disperse from a single point in the sky? You know, I got to answer yes to that question. They disperse from the single point of the sun (laughs) in the sky. What is the point the narrator is trying to make? That if the sun is in outer space, the rays should only point downward? You know, I really have no words to respond to that. Some things are so far out there as to just be foolish. Proverbs 26, 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. In this entire mini series podcast, I guess I am really running the risk of a lot of that in responding to a great deal of what can only be considered foolishness. Well, I'm going to move on anyway. No one's ever accused me of being a smart man. Well, the narrator says that Revelation 16 verses 7 to 8 proves that the sun is located below heaven in the firmament dome. That scripture says, and if you don't know what the Firmament Dome is, that means you haven't listened to the first couple of episodes, so please go back and listen to that, those. That scripture says that an angel pours out his vial upon the sun. According to the narrator, the angel in heaven must be located above the sun, which is in the firmament, in order to be able to pour out his vial on the sun from above we're asked to ignore several essential factors here. First, the book of Revelation is full of symbolism. I'm not saying that the book of Revelation is too difficult to understand, and we just don't know what to make any of the symbols. I happen to think that we can understand revelation and we just carefully go through it and the symbolism isn't nearly as big a deal as what you think it might be. Anyway, I digress we're probably not even talking about anything literally being poured out onto the sun. We're probably talking about God initiating a judgment He has planned for the inhabitants of the earth, which will involve the sun. That's the important thing to get here. Next, we're talking about two different realms of creation that are interacting. The angel, who lives and dwells in the spirit realm, and the sun, which exists in the physical realm. Both are created realms. They make up all of creation. Heaven and earth is how the Bible refers to them. Well, how those realms interact with each other is largely a mystery. Meaning, how did God design it into His creation when something in the spirit realm that's not made of physical matter is sent to cause something to happen in the physical realm? Well, however that is... It's likely not as simple as an angel pouring out the contents of a bowl or a vial onto the sun. Now, what substance would that be? I don't even know. Finally, what is to say that regardless of the angel's original location, that once commanded by God to pour out his vial on the sun, the angel couldn't just travel to the sun from a different quadrant in space and carry out the mission. You know, perhaps he starts out from the Alpha Centauri star system. I don't know. Can you imagine an angel saying, Oh, oh Lord, I would love to pour out the bowl, my God. If only I was located directly over the sun so I could do so. That's just absurd. The narrator tells us it's impossible for the earth to rotate around the sun because the sun was created three days after the earth in the creation account found in Genesis. I laughed inside about the producers of this video saying something was impossible for God to do. The narrator never even offers any explanation why this would make it impossible for God to accomplish. In fact, it makes more sense to think, it was created in that order. Let's say the earth had just been formed and is flying through space at about 67,000 miles per hour. Then, bam, God creates the sun and the moon and the stars in the heavens. The sun catches the earth as it floats by in its gravitational field, and the earth begins its first of many laps around the sun. I don't have any problem believing that. Let's talk about the circuit of the sun. The video again cites Psalms 19, like it's a lesson in astronomy, saying that it's the sun which moves in a regular circuit and not the earth. He describes it like a light bulb on a string swinging around in a circle. This is because verse 6 says, His, the sun's, going forth is from the end of heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it. That is simply the psalmist's way of saying the sun regularly moves across the sky from one side to the other while we remain stationary on the earth. No, this is not technically accurate. It's not science. It's the earth that rotates under the sun, and we're on the earth as it does so. But it appears from our stationary location on the earth that the sun moves across the sky, and we all understand what that means and in fact that's still how we talk about it today highly classically educated astronomers of the world still talk about the sun rising in the east when in fact it's the earth that rotates towards the east exposing the sun once more they do so not because they believe the sun is moving around the earth but because they know that what they say will be commonly understood apart from being technically correct The Bible, likewise, was written in common terms and understanding, not as a technical scientific journal. The Bible uses the language of what appears to be true from what we observe from our perspective. It does not give us a behind-the-scenes scientific explanation of what's going on. If you were to ask anyone to, to talk about their observations of the sun relative to their position on the earth, they would say, well, the sun moved across the sky like it always does. That would be completely understandable. We'd all know what they were saying, and it would be true from their perspective. But to zero in on this kind of thing is to miss the point of the passage that the narrator is citing. According to the narrator's own literal logic, when the scriptures uses the personal pronoun his— when referring to the sun it already doesn't make sense because the sun has no gender but since the bible compares the sun to a bridegroom we got to conclude that the sun is a male right if we can get past that to the part about the sun quote going forth is from the end of the heaven and his circuit unto the end of it unquote If we're able to use his model, the narrator's model of the earth being a round disc, then where would the end of heaven be located? A circle, after all, has no end. But assuming it's what the narrator calls the second heaven we're talking about, being the firmament dome, wouldn't the end of the dome be at its base, where the dome meets the earth? So... If the sun goes to the end of heaven in its circuit, then every day it has to crash into the earth. The big, great earth pizza. How is that like a light bulb swinging on a string? If it's just going around in a circle within the dome above the sky, as the narrator claims, well, like I said, circles have no ends. So how could it make it to the end of its circuit in the firmament like this passage says? Is the Bible wrong if we're going to take this scripture literally? Or is possibly the narrator wrong in his attempt to mislead us by misusing scripture? At about 40 minutes and 30 seconds into the video, the narrator points to Joshua commanding the sun to stand still as he fought the Amorites as evidence that if the sun were not moving, Joshua would not have commanded it to stand still. Joshua, despite being God's chief human on the earth at that time, may have believed it's the sun that moves in the sky, like most other people did who were speaking from the limited data they had to work with in their day. But Joshua most likely believed in many other things that were not true, based on his lack of understanding of God's creation at that time. Just like a baby doesn't understand much about the world until he or she grows and matures. They're not trying to be, you know, deceptive. They're not stupid. They just don't know yet. Well, Joshua wasn't stupid. We don't expect humans to possess knowledge of things that they haven't learned about or hasn't been revealed or discovered. I don't think I can say this enough. Remember, the Bible is typically written from a subjective, observational point of view, not an objective, technically accurate point of view that would have required knowledge of things that didn't exist yet amongst humans or that people didn't yet understand. As for what actually occurred when Scripture says, and the sun stood still and the moon stopped, I don't know for sure. No person, living or dead, could know. I'm not even sure that Joshua knew the mechanics of it at the time. And I'm definitely not sure that the passage has been appropriately translated. Based on the words used in the passage, it may even mean that God kept the sun from appearing to rise for an entire day. He might have kept them all in the dark. I say that because it appears that Joshua did his traveling to the battlefield at night. The word translated as stand thou still can also mean to rest or wait, among several other things it could mean. Well, whatever happened at Gibeon was a miracle. It did not depend on the normal laws of nature. Miracles, according to the will of God, act in defiance of the laws of nature. So why are we even trying to explain that? God did what he wanted to do. Whether the sun stood still or the earth stopped its rotation while not ending up in calamity. You know, I mean, what a feat that would be. Can you imagine the earth going along at a thousand some odd miles an hour and er, it stops? Talk about your calamities. Or if the earth merely slowed for a while, like some think, or the sun was somehow refracted around the globe when it was normally dark, only and out of all of those things, only a supernatural miracle can explain it. And that is no problem for God. But this doesn't prove in any way that the sun is swirling or dangling <laughs> above the earth's surface like a light bulb on a string. I for one have no problem with the idea that God simply kept the lights on as Joshua's armies pursued the Amorites. If you'll recall, God created light on the first day of creation, and He lit the earth for three days before He created the sun on the fourth day. That didn't seem to be a problem for Him either. Miracles rest on the documentation provided in Scripture. That's the basis I believe them under. They are not provable through science, nor accountable to scientific analysis. If you believe what the Bible says, you're believing it on another basis, then you believe somehow the sun was miraculously halted for a day. So here's the same kind of deal. I can make the same comments for what occurs in Isaiah chapter 38, verses 7 to 8. It's another example that the narrator uses. And that's where God moves the time indicated on a sundial 10 degrees backwards as a sign. Now, to be clear about this scripture, It was a shadow and the light of the sun that fell on the sundial, and not necessarily the sun itself that moved backwards for some miraculous reason. So, I don't know. Did one angel block the light from the sun that was hitting the dial, while another angel shone like the sun, causing the light to look like it had moved backwards 10 degrees? I just don't know. I am positive that there are plenty of people out there that would be willing to tell you exactly what happened. Truth is, they have no idea. All I know is that the final outcome is as Isaiah recorded it from his perspective. A miracle took place. Well, I said that's all I know, but I know another thing. (laughs) The fact that a miracle took place is not proof that the sun is dangling over the earth like a light bulb. Next, Revelation chapter 8, verse 12 tells us that during the events that play out in the future, at the end of this current age that we're in, after an angel blows the fourth of seven trumpets, that a third part of the sun will be, quote, smitten, unquote. This results in a third part of the sun being darkened, and it won't shine for a third part of the day. Well, the narrator interprets this to mean that if the earth were to travel around the sun, as reality says happens, that the earth would spend 122 days out of the year in a row in darkness. This is because the way that the narrator pictures the sun is if you were to look at it from above, you know, we're talking about a sphere here now because he's saying what the problem is with a spherical earth. So if you were to look at the sun now from above, the circle that you would see would have a one-third size piece of the pie removed from it. In other words, all of the sun's darkness would be concentrated on a 33% sized wedge of the spherically shaped sun. It's like if you take an orange and you took a third of the wedges out of the orange, that's what the sun would be like. So when the earth would rotate around that side of the sun that was missing its chunks, its orange wedges, you know, a third of it's gone now, then the earth would be plunged into darkness for a third of the year. That's the model that the narrator is painting here. However, Revelation 8.12 says nothing like that. And I'm not sure where the narrator gets that from. If it were a specific piece of the sun that was dark, why not the top third of the sun or patches of the sun that totaled one third that are darkened out? That is as though the narrator created a version of a darkened sun that he designed to fail rather than choosing any number of other possibilities that easily harmonize with both Scripture and what's been proven about the universe. Revelation 8.12 paints a picture of a time when the sun, moon, and stars appear to be one-third darker than they normally are. Secondly, it says in relation to time, they will be a source of light for one-third less during both the day and night. Since none of us know, I'm forced to speculate as to what type of natural phenomenon God might use to bring this darkening of celestial bodies about. However, you know, don't forget, just God does miracles. Maybe it's going to be some supernatural thing. But when we consider what occurred before this event, this future event, what's going to occur before it, when the third angel blows his trumpet, remember we're, we've been talking about the fourth angel blowing his judgment trumpet. but when the third angel blows his trumpet in the future, there it results in a great burning star hitting the earth, which is going to be big enough to contaminate a third of this planet's water. And it may be that the resulting impact of this star, you know maybe an asteroid, maybe a huge meteor, It's going to send so much debris into the air as to block out light of the sun, the moon, and the stars in the stated amounts, you know, the thirds. Regardless, I agree with the narrator that this passage has nothing to do with the earth orbiting the sun over the course of a year. It has to do with the sun being darkened by a third on a daily basis, however God miraculously causes that to happen, whether it's just like contrary to nature, or he uses nature to accomplish it. Next, the narrator cites three passages of scripture which provide proof, in his mind, that the earth cannot possibly be moving. These scriptures all essentially say that the earth will not be moved, thus proving, in the narrator's mind, that the earth cannot be spinning on its axis or orbiting the sun. Documenting scientific truths is again not the reason for any one of these scriptures. Even so, the various writers of these scriptures are still technically correct in that the earth is on a completely stable and unmovable course that God set out for it. That course will not be moved. If we're to apply these simplistic and selective rules of interpretation of scripture that the narrator continually does... And we do that to Psalms 55.22, for example. What would it mean when it says, Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Does that mean if you are righteous, you are like a statue? Can we use this verse to prove that if we see someone moving, that they are unrighteous? When Psalm 62.6 says, He only is my rock. In my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. Well, does that confirm the fact that I will not be moved because I am like a statue that is made in the image of God, who, according to this scripture, is a rock? Well, there are hundreds of examples in scripture I could use to illustrate how silly it is to interpret scripture in a way that the narrator is choosing to do, If his methods were consistently applied throughout the Bible, that's the problem. He's got this selective literalism that make up the bulk of his hermeneutics, his rules of interpretation. Well, for further air quotes, proof, unair quote, that the earth is not moving, the narrator says, quote, this is why airplane pilots can land their planes. The runway is not moving at a thousand miles per hour beneath them. The runway is standing still, Unquote. I've already addressed this argument. The plane can land because it, the atmosphere it's flying in, and the earth are all rotating at the same speed. It's the same idea that makes it possible for you to drink a beverage in a car that's speeding down the road at 90 miles an hour, rather than the drink flying out of the cup into your face. <laughs> the drink is traveling at the same speed that the car is traveling. If, now, if you were to be in a convertible with no windshield, chances are the drink would splash in your face, since the atmosphere surrounding the car is not moving at the same 90 miles per hour as the car is. I gotta say this. I remember asking my mom these same questions when I was in the third grade. These are roughly the same answers my mom gave me back then. The next thing the narrator focuses on is the reason the earth doesn't move. He says the reason the earth doesn't move is because it's built on a foundation. He again cites scripture to support this. The earth does in fact have a foundation. It's made up of its mantle and core. But scripture shouldn't be taken as scientific evidence of that that would not constitute science. Scripture may give us clues and serve as a jump-off point of investigating something in the name of science, but it is not intended to serve as scientific proof. It, by nature, cannot. At most, it can be considered legal evidence, but since many things can't be repeated, it can't be turned into science. Just think of the nature of a miracle. If you set out to determine how a miracle occurred through the use of science, you won't be able to, because scientifically speaking, it's not repeatable. You cannot repeat the miracle, and there is no natural explanation for it. It is a supernatural event that takes place. So, at best, you'll be able to determine through science that there is no natural explanation for something occurring, which is always tough when we're dealing with miracles that happened thousands of years ago because we weren't there to observe it in the first place. So science even has a tough time determining that a miracle occurred. But if it by chance can through archaeology or geology or astronomy, then what you will end up determining is that you don't know how it happened because we can't reproduce that. It's a supernatural occurrence. Anyway, I digress. Here, the narrator again misses the point of the passage that he's referring to because of his misuse of figures of speech and his failure to understand that the Bible was written to communicate the way that humans communicate in the normal and natural customary sense well let's talk about hell the bible says that the earth has a foundation you know just like the narrator pointed out and job 26:7 confirms this by saying that the earth hangs on nothing the narrator says that the earth hangs on nothing because it rests on a foundation and what is in the foundation is hell hell in other words lies beneath our feet buried in the earth the narrator lists several scriptures establishing that there is a literal hell underneath the surface of the earth. I'm not arguing so far. But let's go back for a second and try to picture what the narrator is talking about here. He says that the earth hangs on nothing, like Job 26.7 says, because it has a foundation, um, which hell is in the middle of. Now, if the earth is hanging on nothing because it's resting on a foundation, tell me this. What is the foundation resting on? Isn't it still just floating in space? Or is it a foundation that extends through infinity? Anyway, just trying to picture that. I'm kind of a visual guy in my head that needs to mechanically piece things together. And that one's just not making sense. But let's get back to what the narrator says about hell. I think he's at least partially correct. I believe that God and the authors of the Bible want us to think of hell as a real place. It is a real place, and that that real place is in the earth below us. There are far more scriptures indicating this than the narrator listed. However, although the word translated from Hebrew into English is sometimes, you know, the one for hell, sometimes that same word is translated as the grave and other times as the pit. I'm not so sure that hell when it's talking about the place of the dead souls and demons reside, is a physical place. There are spiritual beings being held in captivity there, and it's a place where bodiless souls, which did not believe in Jesus in life, are now awaiting their judgment. Based on what I gather from the Bible, I don't believe physical objects, places, or barriers can contain spiritual beings. Now, there are kind of some exceptions to that, like in the book of Revelation, it talks about some uh, demonic beings that are right now, today, being held at the river Euphrates, you know, in the Middle East. So how does that work? Well, I don't believe that they're sitting in a physical cell. I think that they're spiritually bound, you know, something spiritual is going on to bind them at the river Euphrates, underneath it, or somewhere in that area. But it's not a physical cage that they're currently in. Hell is a spiritual place with a physical address. In other words, the spiritual realm that hell is a part of intersects with, or coexists with, the physical realm somewhere in the earth. I believe that what lies beneath the surface of the earth, to be a place where the two created realms Converge for God's specific purpose. It's the place the dead are buried in, which is one of the uses of the Hebrew word sheol. And it's the spiritual place called hell. A second way sheol is translated, that's where souls that are damned await their judgment. The third way sheol is translated in the Old Testament is pit. That can either be referring to the spiritual hell or the physical pit, depending on the context. For further discussion on all of this, you might want to tune in to my podcast and listen to the series on the biblical worldview of the spirit realm. I spend an episode talking about the reality of hell. Well, the narrator cites as evidence that Revelation 20, verse 1 says that hell is referred to as a bottomless pit. So according to his logic, if you fell into this pit, you know, now we're talking science here and we're crossing over into the physical realm. If you fell into this pit, you would eventually come out of the other side of the earth, and that doesn't qualify for being bottomless. Well, I get his logic. However, a spiritual place, the spiritual place of hell, where physical creatures will not reside, that's not subject to natural physical laws. As far as we know, a spirit may be reduced how big is a spirit? (laughs) It might be the size of a spiritual pinhead, and it may fall in a figure eight pattern throughout eternity. We have no idea what form a bottomless pit might take in the spiritual realm. The narrator's point is just moot. Well, in chapter seven of the video, the narrator elaborates about the horizon again and how it's a fallacy that things disappear over the horizon due to the curvature of the earth. I've already addressed his main arguments. I'm going to address a couple more of his specific arguments here. First, the narrator points to King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in which there is a tree that's so tall you can see the ends of the earth from it. He says if the earth were like a globe, this would not be possible. As though it would be possible to grow a tree so high as to see thousands of miles in any direction. And for a human to have like telephoto eyes that would allow him to see that far. We're not dealing with physical reality in this dream. We're dealing with a dream. How many people have dreams which match up with reality and technical accuracy? If anyone does, it's rare. And it's not the norm for a dream. The world in your dreams might as well be inside out and made of candy. It was meant, this prophecy was meant to convey a prophetic message, not to convey scientific fact. Now the temptation of Jesus. The narrator again fails to realize what's going on in the Bible as he cites Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. As Satan shows Jesus All the kingdoms of this world by taking him up to an exceedingly high mountain. The narrator says if the earth were round, it wouldn't be possible for Jesus to see all the kingdoms of the world. Yet, if this physically did happen, like the narrator may be suggesting here, he doesn't explain why there is no such literal mountain on the face of the earth today. Well, it's because Jesus and Satan didn't go to the top of a real mountain, and Jesus was merely standing at a high enough vantage point to see thousands of miles away, unless they were in outer space, which, according to the narrator, doesn't exist. No such mountain has ever existed. This was a vision, a dream, or hallucination that Satan caused. If this was possible, why isn't it possible right now to go to the highest mountain on the earth, you know, Mount Everest or K2, it's debatable, and stand there on that mountain and to see every kingdom of the earth. If the earth is flat and the narrator says that it's possible to see everything at once, why can't we just go out and stand on the highest mountain or in the middle of the ocean where there are no obstructions? Why can't we see infinitely in all directions to the edge of this invisible dome that's supposed to be covering us? Anyway, they, they have no answer for that question. Moving on. Uh, the narrator talks about the return of Jesus, as found in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. And that says, When Jesus returns to the earth, that, quote, every eye shall see him, unquote. The narrator obviously believes this is as though we all shall see Jesus when he returns at the exact same time. This is a very... Common belief amongst Christians. I used to believe that. But it's an absurd idea to think that every human, even standing on a flat disk with no trees or valleys or mountains, would be able to see a normal sized Jesus from thousands of miles away, let alone 10 miles away, even on a crystal clear day. Which it won't be, because Jesus' return is associated with all sorts of atmospheric calamity and a worldwide earthquake. In some places, you're going to be lucky to see the hand in front of your face, or to be able to see out from underneath a rubble pile that's just fell on you. Every mountain and island will be moved from its place. Those are the events that are going to be taking place in conjunction with the return of Jesus. The problem for the narrator of the video is that Revelation 1-7 does not say that everyone on the planet will see Jesus at the same time when he returns. You know, the world does not revolve around each of us as individuals. So, taking that into consideration, and as un-American as this may sound, we can assume that this event and like so many other passages, prophetic passages, that they are Jerusalem-centered prophecies. It's the sky over Jerusalem where Jesus ascended into that it's most likely that every eye will have at least the chance to see him arrive. The language of Revelation 1-7 possibly indicates that it's only in the area of his return that every eye will witness the event. Even if this were not true, please answer one question. First, what I need you to do is, if you live outside the nation of Israel, please look out your window towards Israel. Put on your glasses if you wear them. Get out your binoculars if you need them. Now tell me, can you see the sky over Jerusalem right now? By the way, since Jerusalem is about seven to ten time zones away from North America, Doesn't that mean that we should be able to see the stars in the nighttime sky above Jerusalem when it's still daylight here? Especially, there's no horizon, and we should be able to see thousands of miles away because of it, right? Isn't that the narrator's logic? So the narrator wants us to believe that you can see the entire flat earth disk that we're on if you're high enough in a tree, or if you're on this fictitious mountain that Jesus was taken up to, this mountain that was in a dream, or... In the future, when Jesus returns, that you'll be able to stand wherever you are on the earth. And because the earth is flat, you're going to be able to see the skies over Jerusalem. But you can't do any of those things right now. You can't demonstrate that any of those things are true right now. Well, let's get back to reality. It is possible that God will cause the entire planet to witness the event of Christ's return simultaneously. I mean, if you know the signs of what's going on, of course you're going to know that it's the return of Jesus, a worldwide earthquake. Nothing like that's ever happened. The sun is going to lose its light. The moon's going to turn red. There's going to be a meteor shower like you've never seen before. All of those things happen in conjunction with this worldwide earthquake. That is the sign. It's the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. That's what everyone on the planet is going to witness, but it is possible Since elsewhere in the New Testament, it talks about this, that simultaneously, since it says, as lightning flashes from the east, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It says that in Matthew 24, verse 27. The return of Jesus may send a lightning-like flash around the globe. As lightning flashes from the east, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So, I'm certainly... The followers of Jesus will witness his return since as Matthew chapter 24 tells us that at that time, Jesus will send out his angels to gather his elect. How many times have you heard on the news that there was something like a great flaming meteor that was only one state, maybe it was one state over from you, or maybe it was in Russia or wherever, but it wasn't close enough for you to witness Maybe it was strange lights in the sky being reported on that were a few states away, but you had no idea it was going on. You know, if you live at the equator, you've never seen the northern lights in the sky because besides it being over the horizon, they're just too far away. The idea that the entire world would be able to witness Jesus' return over Jerusalem is no more reasonable for you to witness than seeing a jet fly over Phoenix, Arizona if you live in Los Angeles. It would just be too teeny in the sky. Now, I'm, I'm sorry to uh, break down your second coming paradigm this morning, if that's what happened. Um, if I can make a suggestion, you might want to go listen to our podcast series on the first book I wrote called Watch. It's a pretty thorough discussion of the second coming of Jesus based around his own talk about his own coming. Um, called the Olivet Discourse, where he was talking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives about when he's going to return. Anyway, moving on, the narrator claims that airline pilots don't need to dip the nose of their plane when landing because the earth is flat, so you don't need to steer down in order to land. Well, if the earth were curved, they said that we would need to steer the plane downward downward, constantly, not just to land, but to follow the curvature of the earth as an airline pilot. So he's got to go, oop, I got to steer down, oop, I got to steer down. Well, the real reason that pilots don't need to steer their plane downward to land is number one, because gravity is pulling them towards the earth, especially as the plane's airspeed is reduced and gravity overcomes the low pressure on top of the plane's wings, which has been holding the plane aloft there's this effect, the wings are shaped so that the air going over the top has to go faster than the air underneath, which creates low pressure, which kind of like sucks the plane up into the air. If you've, uh, if you're not a pilot or you, you've never heard about that kind of thing, that's what holds a plane up in the air. Well, when you go slower, the air goes over the top of the wing slower, which allows gravity to start taking effect and the plane will sink towards the earth. That's why you don't need to steer down to lower your your altitude. But as they're just going along, as they're just flying along parallel to the surface of the earth, it's because the curvature of the earth is so gradual that it's not noticeable in such short distances as, number one, the runway takes up. If All of that being said, if the airplane engines were powerful enough, if a plane flew in a perfectly straight line they would indeed eventually enter space and leave the Earth's atmosphere. So planes do follow the curvature of the Earth. It doesn't require steering down. In fact, they descend uh, about, planes descend about 8 inches in altitude about every mile that they go. But that is imperceptible to humans. I got my private pilot's license decades ago. Haven't flown in decades either. I, I still think that I could land a plane without killing anybody. I wouldn't want to be the one to uh, be with me when I was conducting that experiment. Anyway, like I previously stated, the curvature of the Earth is so gradual that one needs to be at least 35,000 feet up to be able to witness it. So you're just not going to feel this steering down thing. But it, it does, in fact, happen. You, go, you descend 8 inches for every mile that you travel forward. Well, what the narrator doesn't say is that when airliners fly from one destination to another, they fly in a straight line. They follow what's called the Great Circle. They follow the curvature of the spherical globe parallel to the Earth. But it's the straightest line possible between two places. Well, if you were to look at those places on the Earth and you were to trace the flight path that airliners actually take, Onto a flat earth map, then it looks like the plane has to travel in, in an arc. It doesn't look on their map like they're taking the shortest route possible. And so, in fact, if, if an airliner were to take the path as outlined on a flat earther map, they would constantly have to be turning to follow that path. Just doesn't make sense because it's not reality. Next, Citing what is again figurative language that everyone understands now and everyone understood when it was written, the narrator attempts to make a point that according to select scriptures, the earth has a literal physical end or edge to it. The first verse in question is Psalm 67 7, which says, God shall bless us and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. I have to ask, Since we're supposed to take this verse as scientific fact, in verse 1, when it asks for God to shine His face upon us, if we're to take this as the sun is actually God's face, is that what it is that's shining on us in the sky? Then, in the next psalm, Psalm 68, 5, when it says that God is the Father of the fatherless, does that mean there are people walking the earth who had no father? Is this referring to others who were conceived like Jesus? I know that the normal, natural, customary way we would understand this would mean that a male impregnated a female and then abandoned her, but shouldn't we take this scripture literally, like we're doing when it suits the purposes, trying to make a case for a flat earth? The normal way we would understand the statement, the ends of the earth, is to say that it's referring to the most remote, distance, and hard-to-get-to places on the planet. We call those places, in our common way of communicating, the ends of the earth. The narrator then explains where, according to the flat earth model, the ends of the earth are. It turns out, the end of the earth is located at the Great Ice Wall. You all know where that is. The Great Ice Wall is also known as Antarctica. The narrator makes his case based on a true fact. No matter where you start from in the north... If you head south far enough, you'll eventually end up at the coast of Antarctica, which is mostly covered in ice. Of course, there are all sorts of photographs from space and satellite images of Antarctica and maps that have been made by people who have been there and crossed it and went all the way around it. And they all show that Antarctica is a large continent at the bottom of a round Earth. However, the video claims that Antarctica is actually, this is a quote, it is a giant sheet of ice that compasses the whole Earth, unquote. They claim it takes the shape of a ring that surrounds the outside of the disc-shaped Earth. It's the Earth's perimeter, a perimeter that they say no one has or ever may pass over. This means there's no such thing as the South Pole and it would be impossible for anyone to cross Antarctica from one side to the other. If someone were to pass over the ice ring that's holding in the oceans and setting the boundary of the end of the earth, they would naturally bump into the firmament dome. So I gotta ask, since humans are curious explorers by nature, if the video is correct about this, why have humans never attempted to cross the ice and find the dome? Are there dragons waiting on the other side? Why don't they just take a helicopter up over the top? Why don't they fly a a military plane over the ice ring? Are they afraid of bumping into the dome? Have they done it and they're tired of losing people? Wow. The facts are that it's not true, as the narrator (laughs) claims, that Antarctica is not a continent and that it's entirely made of ice. It's this big, huge ice ring that's kind of like at the same time it's holding in the oceans, it's like floating there because ice floats on water. Well, the facts are that it's not true. This is just another complete fabricated lie. Antarctica is the world's fifth largest continent, and it's only mostly covered in ice. There's seasonal thawing under the ice that shows mostly gravel, stones, and boulders. About 5% of its coastline if you were to travel around the coastline, is actually made up of exposed rock. The video claims, quote, Antarctica has never been inhabited, unquote. Antarctica is far from uninhabited, and I'm not just talking about penguins. There are normally about 5,000 people living there year-round. When you cross over the edge of Antarctica at its coastline and you continue south, You eventually encounter a research station located at the South Pole called Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station, which between 50 and 200 people from all over the world live at year-round. The South Pole was reached the first time in 1911. Since 1957, at least 1,666 people have wintered over there at least once. Any direction you go as you leave the South Pole is north. <laughs> Follow that direction and it'll take you back to the coast of Antarctica. Right now, today, in 2022, for a price, anyone may book a flight aboard a 787 Dreamliner and fly over Antarctica all the way to the South Pole. The flight, if you can afford it, takes about 12 and a half hours and departs from Australia. Well, besides all the physical geographic evidence that Antarctica exists as a continent, there are copious amounts of other geography problems with the flat Earth model leaves unaddressed. The biggest of which, if you look at a map of how the video pretends the Earth is laid out on a flat Earth disk, the North Pole is at the center of the disk. Everything, oceans and continents, radiate out from the North Pole. Well, like in any circle, the further away from the center of the circle, as you travel latitudinally around the circle, the greater the distance will be. You know, the circle keeps getting bigger until you reach the outside rim. So if you're only 10 feet from the south of the North Pole, it'll only take you about 10 seconds to make it entirely around the circle to get back where you started. Well, once you make it, to the equator, the circle is much larger, of course, and it'll take you much longer to make it around the circle. But that's where, on a spherical Earth, the distance around the Earth would start getting shorter again as you continue to travel south. On a flat, disc-shaped Earth, the latitudinal distances just keep getting longer and longer until you reach what the narrator calls the Great Ice Shelf. Well, based on this, It should take days longer to travel from one continent in the southern hemisphere to another if you were to travel along the latitudinal lines. Yet, it doesn't. It's 4,116 miles from Cape Town, South Africa, to the southern tip of South America. It should be several times that number of miles if the flat Earth theory were true. Everybody knows that the shortest distance between two locations is a straight line. Do we not know that? Well, as previously pointed out, if you're to try to travel in a straight line, according to a flat Earth map from the south tip of South America in the southern hemisphere to Australia, also in the southern hemisphere, your flight path going along a straight line would take you near the North Pole. You know, you would shoot straight north through South America, up through North America, close to the North Pole, and then south to Australia. On a globe, of course, the shortest distance flight path takes you close to Antarctica as the pilot flies the, uh, the southern hump, like we have the northern hump. They go over the hump the, following the Great Circle. Well, by the time you travel all the way to the Great Ice Shelf, otherwise known as Antarctica, the flat earthers claim that one has to travel 69,000 miles to sail around the entire distance of the ice ring. That's how far it is around the uh, the flat earth, 69,000 miles. That would take an airliner flying about four and a half days, 24 hours a day, nonstop to make that trip. It would take a ship sailing at 23 miles per hour about four months to cover that same distance. Well, in actuality, the coastline is only about 11,200 miles long. That includes all the different bays and inlets. That distance is only 16% of the length necessary to make a flat earth ice ring that's holding all the oceans in work. That is repeatedly provable if any flat earther were to want to take that on. Well, the narrator summarizes the flat earth model. This is his verbatim summary. This is a quote. We have the firmament, a glass-like dome overarching the face of the earth. Above the firmament, we have heaven, where God's throne is. Below the firmament, we have a circle, covered by land and sea. Within the firmament, we have sun, moon, and stars, traveling in a circular pattern. Below the ground, we have the foundations of the earth, and within that foundation is hell. And around the perimeter, we have a giant ice wall holding in the ocean. That's the end of that quote. But then he says, quote, This matches what we can gather with our senses and what we can read in the Bible, unquote. Well, the narrator continues with his final misleading questions. Here they are. Where in the Bible does it say that the earth is a globe? Where in the Bible does it say that the earth is rotating on an axis, Where in the Bible does it say that the earth is rotating the sun? Where in the Bible does it say we're traveling through a galaxy? Where in the Bible does it say that space even exists? The fact is that it doesn't. It's simply an illusion perpetuated by the media. Well, here's my questions for the narrator. Where in the Bible does it specifically say none of those things are true? Where does the Bible say that humans need oxygen to survive? Where does the Bible say that bacteria exists? Where does it say that the temperature water freezes at is 32 degrees and boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit? The fact is, the Bible does not say many things about scientific facts because it's not the purpose God had in mind for the Bible. ABC's Nightline recorded one flat earther saying that, quote, There's no way you can get a spinning heliocentric globe out of anything in the Bible, unquote. This is but one of the flat earthers' leaps of logic and misuse of scripture, that the absence of specific technical scripture is proof that something doesn't exist, as if the purpose of the library of books which make up our Bible is to provide us with science behind God's creation. By this same reasoning, there's no way you can get that this flat earther has any gray matter which can be called a brain out of the Bible. The Bible is silent on the existence of marzipan and automobiles. It doesn't even mention sonic booms that occur when a plane surpasses a seat of spa- sound. I could continue for days and days on all the things that are clearly true, that exist, but that the Bible is silent on. The narrator ends the video by asking the question, why does the shape of the earth matter? He then, of course, answers his own question. He says, quote, because many people do not believe in God because of a lie that science has told them, Unquote. I would say more people don't believe in God because they think people who do believe in God are idiots who believe this kind of crap. The narrator says that Satan does not want man to know that God is above them. He wants them to think that God is millions of light years away. And, quote, the farther he is physically, God is physically, the farther he will become mentally, unquote. This is as though God is a physical being. He is in one place. He's limited, subject to physical laws such as distance and time. Then the narrator asks, How many Christians would feel a greater sense of comfort if they knew their God was right above them? According to Scripture, God is spirit. He's not limited to a physical place. He doesn't have a physical address. He's sovereign. He knows everything. He sees everything and is all-powerful. He doesn't need to hover above the earth and sit on a throne. If God was some kind of being who resided on the other side of some dome in the sky, it would do nothing but hinder him. Well, then the narrator asks, How many atheists would reconsider if they knew science had told them a lie? If you were to hand out a questionnaire to a bunch of atheists as to why they don't believe in God, I would guess far more would check the box because Christians appear to be a bunch of gullible idiots that don't believe in provable scientific facts, far more than they would check the box because they believe in the Big Bang Theory or the theory of evolution. Another question justifying why it's important to believe the lie of the flat earth theory, according to the narrator, is, How many people would get saved if they knew hell was waiting right underneath their feet? The answer is the number of people saved will be the exact number of people whom God appointed to salvation before the foundation of the earth was even formed. Not one less, not one more. Well, the closing words of the narrator include these, The majority of people, Christians and non-Christians alike, will continue to mock the idea of a flat earth, esteeming it nothing more than a caveman's theory. But the truth is that God created the flat earth and not man and those that mock the flat earth do not mock man but their creator Unquote. the ber- the uh, verb form of the word mock means to tease or laugh at in a scornful or contemptuous manner i do not mock authentic followers of jesus who've chosen to believe the flat earth theory i am concerned for them i want them to hear and understand the lies that they've been told and have an opportunity to respond to the truth I also do not mock those who are proponents and champions of the flat-earth theory. I pity them, and I call them out for what they are. They are fools. They are deceivers. They are wolves in sheep's clothing and false prophets. It is they who mock God and His creation. It is they who are driving people away from the truth. It is they who are dividing the body of Christ on earth by using some of the most childish techniques known to history. I don't mock these people, but I also do not regret exposing them for what they are. I don't know these people's hearts. I can't judge their motivation. That's up to God. It's just my role to speak the truth. And that is all I have to say about that. If you're interested in what is essentially the script of this Flat Earth debunked video series, you can go to my website at DougHooley.com and download a PDF copy of it. Right now it's on the main page of my website at the bottom. If you're not already doing so, I hope you'll join me for the regular Called Out Cafe podcast. The current series that we're on is titled Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. It's based on my latest book by the same title. To find out more about what I'm doing with books and podcasts, videos, and blogs, you can visit my website. So until next time you find yourself listening to The Called Out Cafe, may God bless you and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at dughooley.com or email me at doug at Doughooley.com. That's doug at d-o-u-g-h-o-o-l-e-y dot com I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.